0: Paul is engaged in what's called a diatribe in which he is letting us hear, you might say, the arguments or the protest of an individual who's speaking to him and giving his thoughts and ideas. And Paul right now is engaged in a conversation in which he's speaking to a religious Jew. And the religious Jew is asking questions. Paul is giving answers. Let's start again. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because of them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe or were faithful? Will their unbelief, unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul adds here, I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Paul responds, As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now Paul writes, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. It would be very helpful for us as we're looking at this passage if we understand and seal in our minds this idea that Paul is an evangelist. He is a declarer and preacher of the good news. He's a doer. He is not intellectually aloof from the things that he writes about. He is not merely addressing individuals in some kind of academic exercise. What he writes about is what he has experienced, what he has discovered of God's way as he's made his way to lost men and lost women with a longing and a desire to proclaim to them and preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look in the very first chapter of Romans when Paul is introducing himself, he tells people that he has been called or he's been set apart for the gospel of God. He tells us that he is a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells those in Rome that he's ready to come to them and preach or declare the gospel. He then tells them that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Paul is saying, I am coming with an intent and a purpose. I'm coming to proclaim the gospel. And then Paul writes his letter. And you know what his letter is? It's the proclamation of the gospel. He's laying down before them the pathway and the course that he takes And bringing the gospel into every place that he's gone before. He's never been to Rome. But he's letting them know the message and the way and the manner in which he brought that message. In the form of the argumentation and presentation that he's made in the gospel. And every place that he's gone. Paul is committed to making the gospel known to people that need the good news. He's been engaged in communicating this gospel for many years at this point in time. To many different individuals and many different places. And so the conversation that we're reading here, that we're coming to at the end of this passage, in which we've been following how Paul presents how he starts with the gospel among those who are... Pagans and bound up in idolatry, and then he pivots to show us how he engages the gospel with a Greek moralist who thinks that he's superior from those who are roiling in their own sin, and then he pivots now to show us how he begins to engage a religious Jew in the gospel. And in each one of these cases, you can imagine the kind of conversation that's taking place. You can imagine the kinds of things that Paul said when he was going into the marketplace in order to preach to the Gentiles. You can imagine the kind of thing and the way that he dialogued with the Greek when he was sitting. On on Mars Hill talking with the key philosophers there you can imagine how it was when Paul went to a synagogue and began to engage a religious Jew you can see it all and what Paul is doing at this point in time is he's not just imagining these things instead what you really have you have like a composite of the kinds of conversations that he's had over and over and over again so he knows how they go there's something consistent about the way in which the spirit of God is working in people's lives and there's something consistent about the way in which people under conviction respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and how that gathers around and guides the way he has conversations with individuals. There are a number of commentators that think that this passage that we're looking at is maybe one of the most difficult to understand, not only in the book of Romans and not only in the writing of Paul, but in all of Scripture. I think that may be true. There are some things that are questionable and so there are different ways in which they're interpreted. But I think the clue to understanding it is that Paul is an evangelist. And the clue for ourselves in understanding it is to think through our engagement with people in the gospel. And the more you do that, the more you see that this is a pattern that you'll see over and over again. And so, possibly, in this case, the greatest help I've had in being able to come to a text like this is the fact that over the last 30 years, in places all over the world, and in South America and Central America and Africa and in Europe and in Asia. I've had the opportunity by God's grace to engage people in these kinds of conversations and this makes sense to me. I can see something what Paul is talking about now. Now remember, Paul is talking to the religious Jew and I think at the same time we can see that the response that he meets with establishes a pattern that we could see developed in any individual's life who is under conviction. What we're seeing in this passage is what a man under conviction will do when he's engaged in this kind of dialogue in the gospel in which Paul is bringing to him with force the recognition that he's a sinner and that he's under God's judgment. So let's keep that in mind. And the first thing, by the way, and this is, maybe this is not my first point, but this is just something that I want you to see. Let's just do a little bit of an overview of what we see in the response of this individual as he's interacting with Paul. And the first thing we see here is that this individual begins to evoke God and God's attributes. Do you see that? He begins to evoke God and God... And this is interesting, because earlier as Paul begins to express the nature of sinful man, he tells us that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that sinful men suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. They suppress the knowledge of God because... The knowledge of God imposes upon their own desire to live for themselves and live independent of God, and so they put that aside and they suppress it. But now that they're being brought under conviction, now that they're being pressed to see their sin and the fact that they stand before a God who's going to judge them for that sin, all of a sudden, in the midst of that press, in the net of conviction that's being pulled in around them, the same individual begins to evoke God as a part of their defense. This is what the religious Jew is doing here. He tries to rebut Paul's warning of judgment by asserting that he's not going to be judged because, well, God has a covenant, and God has to be true with the covenant he's made to us. And God is faithful, and God has to be true to himself. And and God is righteous, and God will do the righteous thing. And God is a God of truth whose glory matters above everything else. And these things will somehow get me off the hook of judgment from God. And then what I want you to see here is that Paul embraces the very attributes that he is raising up as as his defense. Paul doesn't deny those attributes. Paul acknowledges those attributes of God that he's affirming but as Paul acknowledges them he presses the person to see that the truth of who God is in all these ways does not keep that individual from facing God's judgment. God's judgment is still in play. Paul receives the final pushback of this man under conviction and Paul lets the person talk. And as this religious Jew is grabbing for any defense that he can come up with, as he speaks, his conviction is squeezing him tighter and tighter. So here's what I want you to do today as we're looking through this passage. I want you to consider the pattern of defense in this man who is under conviction. I want you to listen to it and see if you recognize this pattern, if you've seen it before. As you process the pushback that is coming from this convicted person, think about whether you've heard those arguments or something like that in others. These arguments will need to be defeated. This individual who's pushing against what Paul has said needs to be stripped of all of his self-defense so that he may come in surrender to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and grab hold of the one thing he needs to lay hold of. Not those defenses. The one defense that will secure him. And bring him safe through the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these protests. And the first protest that he makes is this. He says, God has formed a covenant. And God must be true to that covenant. And this assures me that I'm not going to be judged. Or what's the benefit of the covenant that God has established with us? Look at verses 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Those are allusions to the covenant that God has made with the people of Israel. Paul responds in this way, much in every way, chiefly, because to them, this person included, have been committed the oracles of God. We spoke about this last week. The oracles of God are the declaration of God's word to men and to individuals. So here's Paul's answer. The most significant benefit that you've received from God's covenant with Israel is this. God has entrusted to you, God has Given to you his word. God has spoken to you. And God has spoken to your people. That's your great benefit. And you know what? That's not what this person wants to hear. That doesn't bring a sense of comfort to him. That actually brings a greater sense of conviction to him. Because when God speaks, he knows something of the history. When God speaks to us, there becomes the knowledge of sin. You'll remember that when Adam sinned, We're told that he heard the voice of God coming into the garden and he hid. He was under conviction for a sin. You know when the nation of Israel escaped their bondage in Egypt and they came and were brought to Mount Sinai. There on Mount Sinai God revealed himself and fire and and flashings of lightning and the people stood and they were able to endure it. But then God spoke and they heard God's voice and they cried out and they they said to Moses, please don't have God speak to us again or we'll die. His voice penetrated and spoke to them and brought conviction upon them. We have the story of Elijah. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb and there God comes before Elijah and he comes before Elijah in a great wind that is literally shattering the rocks of the mountain. And then there's a great fire that takes place and sweeps over the mountain. And then there's a tremendous earthquake that takes place and Elijah is able to withstand all of that. But then God speaks in a still small voice. And Elijah wraps a mantle around his face. It's what un- does him. It's what exposes him. It's God's voice that speaks to him. When you bring this message to a person who's under conviction, you tell them God is present. And God is speaking to you. That's a word of conviction. That's a word that penetrates their heart. In the seven letters that were written in the 2nd chapter and 3rd chapter of Revelation, you have 7 letters that are written to the churches. And there is comfort to be drawn, some comfort to be drawn in most of those letters, given to those who are being faithful to the Lord. But at the same time, there is an exposure of the judgment and wrath that's coming upon them because of their sin. Each one of those letters is punctuated with a final word of conviction. It's this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Not comfort, but conviction. So Paul's answer is basically, yes, yes, God has revealed himself. And yes, God has brought you into a special relationship. And here's the relationship that you benefited from. Here's the great benefit that's come to you. He's spoken to you. He's speaking to you even now. Now let's read the next verses, verses 3 and 5. The person responds, for what if some did not believe? What if there are some who are unfaithful? Will their unbelief or unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God without effect? Paul responds, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true. And every man a liar It is has written that you may be justified in your words and that you may overcome when you are judged. A positive way of saying this, repeating this question is basically the protest is this. God's faithfulness means he will keep his word even though some are not faithful to him. Doesn't God have to remain faithful even though some are not? Paul's answer is this, without a doubt, you can count on it, God is faithful. Let God be true, and every person a liar. Actually, if you put it in the negative, basically this, can some person's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says it this way, God forbid, may it never be, absolutely not, God will be faithful to everything that he's promised, but that's not a comfort either. This individual knows that God's faithfulness to his promises includes not only his promises to bless, but he's also faithful to his promises to curse. God has given promises to bless those who obey him, but he also has promised to curse those who resist him and disobey him and will not come in faith to him. And When the nation of Israel had escaped the promised land again and then they had wandered to the wilderness, they had failed then when God brought them to the promised land to go in and there was a generation that died in the wilderness and another generation rose up and, and it was to that second generation that Moses remained to teach them the law. That's what we have in the book of Deuteronomy. We have the second law, the repeating of the law that God gives to the second generation before they go into the promised land. And Moses gave them some instruction that when they went into the promised land, they were to go and gather, the nation was to gather at the foot of two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And half of the nation was to stand on Mount Ebal. And half of the nation was to stand on Mount Gerizim. And then there was to be a sacrifice that was made. And the law was to be read. And then the curses against those who disobeyed the law were to be pronounced. And those on Mount Ebal, after each curse, were to cry out, Amen. So be it. So be it. And then after that, the blessings were to be pronounced from Mount Gerizim before the people blessings and curses is a part of what God gave to the nation when they came in, into the land, the promised land. And, and in Joshua 8, they arrive into the promised land. God gives them this miraculous victory over Jericho and another great victory over the people of Ai. And then they go to the place of Mount Ebal and Gerizim and they declare this law as declared before them in this act of Confession before the law, before the curses and the blessings are made by the people. It's in that sense and understanding these blessings and cursings that you should understand what Moses says. And, And one of the last statements that he makes to the people of Israel before he passes away, before he dies, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Take your Bibles and go there. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm going to read to you verses 15 and 20. It gives a capstone of the charge that Moses has been giving to the people as he's laying the law before them. He says here, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I commanded you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you go to possess. But... If your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them I announce to you today that you shall surely perish you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go into possess I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. The point here is this. God is faithful. That's what Paul is saying. Yes, God is faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar. So that God is justified in his judgments. By the way, it says so that God is, prevails when he's judged. You realize that when anyone judges, when a person renders a judgment, that immediately, whatever his verdict is and whatever his judgment is, he sets himself up for review for a judgment of those who analyze his judgments. Just uh, yesterday, my wife and I had an opportunity to meet and spend some time with a gentleman who is the only federal judge in the state of Idaho and he had come up and he had been trying a case and we were visiting with him he was sharing with us something about the case and then he said now listen don't believe what you read in the newspaper don't believe what the headlines are about it it's not correct what is he telling you somebody's rendering a judgment on his judgments right that's not what took place that's not what I said that's not what I determined it's just kind of a little interesting aside and it fits with what Paul is saying here that God will overcome, He prevails when He's judged. Ultimately, God has said it this way, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will prove Himself righteous in all of His judgments because He's faithful. He's faithful to Himself. He's faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His declarations. Although, all men at some point are not faithful to Him. so, Paul, by making this affirmation of God's faithfulness that has been brought forward by the individual, is not relieving this individual's conviction. He's magnifying it. And so the man gets a little bit more desperate. And so he says in verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 3, and and you can go back there again. We'll keep going through this passage. Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The man protests a little more. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Paul now inserts here, I'm speaking as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world, is Paul's answer. The protest is this. God's righteousness is magnified by our unrighteousness. So how can he judge us for our failures? And you can see here that the argument is getting more and more emotional and more and more desperate at this point. As the conviction tightens the scramble for a way to get off the hook becomes more obvious here it seems to me that the person is really arguing that god must be merciful to him god is the one who has set forward the laws that expose his sins sins that he commits that reveal how righteous god is by contrast and if god is righteous then god must be merciful to us when our unrighteousness demonstrates by contrast how truly righteous he is that's their argument isn't your view of god's wrath then a little bit unjust he's saying Aren't you being a little bit harsh to say he's going to judge me? Paul says this tortured logic this man is giving. He said, you know, I I am speaking as a man. I'm speaking as this man under conviction. He's giving us the logic of a person who's in the noose of conviction. He's trying to wriggle his way out of it. Remember, by the way, Paul is speaking to a religious Jew. And the religious Jew's hope above everything else was the coming of a Messiah. A Messiah that would come and reign and bring his righteous judgments upon the earth. A Messiah that would throw down all of Israel's enemies, which are supposedly the Messiah's enemies as well. And all of Israel will be exalted to reign and rule with this Messiah who is establishing his judgments. That's his hope. And so the very logic now this man is using is somehow against the very hope that he's anchored himself in as a Jew. And Paul says in answer to the man's question... Is God unjust when flicked wrath? Paul says, may it never be. Again, absolutely not. How else will God bring justice to the world if he cannot judge it? Again, the point here is that God is righteous. You're correct in saying that he's righteous, and we're not, but this does not change the fact that God is going to righteously judge the world. And if he's going to righteously judge the world, he's going to righteously judge world you as well. and So this convicted man becomes even more desperate. He holds on to that argument, but now he translates it to make another argument. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. This is his final protest. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, if my unrighteousness demonstrates His righteousness, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, Let us do evil that good may come. And now Paul begins to give a response. As we are slanderously reported. Yes, I've heard this before is what Paul is saying. People have said this is what I'm suggesting. And just so you know, reason it that way. You think this way. Your condemnation, their condemnation is just. Paul brings them right back to judgment again. Each one of these statements, every response that Paul gives is bringing them back to, yes, this is true. God has made a covenant and his covenant has been given and it's that you have heard his word that brings you under account to him and you're responsible for him. Yes, it's true. God is faithful and he'll be faithful to judge you if you don't keep his word. And yes, it's true. God is righteous, but God is righteously going to judge you. And yes, it's true that God speaks truth and God seeks glory for himself. If you think somehow this approves of your sin and gives you leeway to sin, well, your condemnation is just. But I think here, besides the argument that he's made in his third protest, I think this is basically what this man is saying. If, as you suggest, God's being true to his word and to the glory of who he is, if this requires that he judge me because of my lie or some sin that I've committed, and that he pour out his wrath upon me because of my lie and my sin that I've committed. That you've told me that I've done in the past. then you erase any reason for me of being good at all. Listen, if the way God demonstrates his truth, and the way God demonstrates his judgment, is he judges me because I told a lie, then why be good at all? I'll just throw in the towel now and I'll just live in my sin and I'll just pursue it no reason if I can't save myself by my good works and my attempt to be a good person and I can't somehow save myself by doing these things then why even try I'll just give in to my sins that's what I'll do And Paul says yeah that's people have said that's what I'm teaching yeah I'm teaching unrighteousness I'm teaching that you ought to just be more sinful that God would be glorified And if that's a conclusion you've drawn from all that I've said to you your condemnation is just your condemnation is just. Well, actually, look at it this one. And pay attention to what's revealed in the statements this man is making. You know, follow with me here. First, his protest is an assertion about God before some general principle or some general idea of a covenant. Why be in this covenant with God? All right? Second, he makes an assertion of God's faithfulness, but it's cast against the idea of some individual who might not be faithful. Right? Just because some are not faithful, that doesn't mean God is not going to be faithful. And then his next assertion is an assertion of God's righteousness in light of our unrighteousness. Oh, God is righteous if we're unrighteous. And that demonstrates that God is righteous. And then finally, in his final assertion, the conviction tightens down to God's truth before my lie. General idea, you know, general principle. Then, well, some who are unfaithful. And then, well, our unrighteousness. And then, my lie. He stops with my lie. What's the good of being an Israelite? What if some among us are unfaithful? What if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God? What if my lie magnifies His truth? And there it is. Below all the logic, below all the argumentation, below all the rationalization... There lies this one thing, my lie, my guilt, my sin. Paul's let it become exposed. He's let him state his declarations. He's let him carry out his arguments. He's dialogued with him, and he's just listened to him. And as he's listening to, the man is exposing himself. The man is actually drawing down to the very thing Paul started with. You're a sinner. You're before God's judgment. So having said all that and having looked at that, let's make some applications Here's the first application to this. I want you to note that Paul listens and concedes to the truth regarding God that the person introduces, but that Paul never pits one thing that is true about God against another thing that is true about God. He doesn't get distracted from this one important truth that he wants to communicate about God. God is a righteous judge, and he's going to hold you to account. If you don't understand anything else about God, What you need to know is what your future holds is a day in which you will stand before him and he will judge you in righteousness because he's a righteous judge. He doesn't release that person from that thought or that idea. He'll listen. He'll take what the person says because in some wonderful way, the truth is even in this man's desperation, he's revealing that he's been suppressing something he knew about God all along. He knew that God was a God who was spoken. He knew that God was a God who was faithful to his word. He knew that God was righteous. He knew that God was true. He knew that God was to be glorified. He hasn't followed in that pathway. He hasn't pursued those things. But he's demonstrating what he was suppressing all along. It's coming out in the conversation. And Paul, very gently and very graciously in a sense, holds him to those things. He doesn't let any slack form in the line. He keeps a gentle, taut line on the conviction and the very point that he's trying to make. So often when we speak to individuals, because we want to curry their favor, if they get frustrated, they get angry, and they throw their emotion at us, we retreat from the position of that they need to know. Well, you know, and we, we hold back from it, and Paul doesn't do that. As they're making their complaints, as they're running away, he's giving them a little bit of line. As they're running towards them, he's pulling in the line taut because... He wants to hold them before this truth, this reality that this God who is a God who speaks and a God who is faithful and a God who is righteous and a God who is true and a God who is to be glorified is the God you're going to stand before in judgment. And you're going to have to answer to him. He doesn't release them from those things. Too often, too often, we release people when they start to fight or they put up their fight and we don't want to seem harsh. And No, we just have to gently keep holding to the lines of what we're saying, what's true and what they need to know. And we have to be convinced of this. Paul is giving us the pattern of which he shares the gospel. You cannot bring a person before the gospel unless they understand and comprehend their sin and that there's no response or no answer for them before God other than judgment than through the gospel of Jesus Christ in which he's provided a sacrifice for their sins. Not a thing that they can do. No work that they can provide. This individual, by the way, is demonstrating two things. He knows he's a sinner. But in the last statement, why should I not continue going on sinning? If I can't make myself righteous by my own efforts, then I'll just sin instead. And so he tells you the two things. That he's, one is he wants to follow his vices and he wants to follow his sin. And the other thing in human nature is he wants to prove himself righteous on his own without God. He's revealing his position, his standing before God and what he's going to be judged for. He's going to be judged for his sin and he's also going to be judged because he refused God's way of righteousness. As he tried to establish his own righteousness before God. So don't give anyone a way out other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing. Paul is not giving up. The resistance that Paul faces here, that he's faced with the moralists and now he's facing with the religious Jew, does not cause Paul to abandon the individual as a lost cause. The Lord Jesus told his disciples, that he sent them out two by two, that if they were to go to home and the home wouldn't receive him, that they could take their sandals, and they could knock the dust off the sandal of their feet in front of that house. Well, they had an opportunity. We, in our generation, anticipate the rebuttals and the resistance we're going to meet. And so before we even engage the individual, we just knock the dust off our feet. Well, no one's going to listen. And You know, we live in this modern age in which this intellectual world where people think they're so smart and they've got all kinds of arguments they pose against God. And so as a result, it's too hard to reach them and we don't even try. And Here's the interesting thing. There's nothing new under the sun. The arguments that you face today, the very arguments you face today, in every place, Paul was facing on a regular basis. He didn't give up. He didn't draw back. He continued to pursue them. He didn't throw in the towel in the face of the resistance. He didn't back off. What does he do? He keeps engaging him. This is the kind of conversation that he met with. And he was willing to risk it and to engage it and to face the opposition in order that he might leave truth behind that would continue to speak in the life of that individual. And the wonderful thing that I think kept Paul from doing this is he knew this. In the middle of all these things, he could hear that this person was convicted by their sins. He could hear that this person did have some understanding of God, and he knew that this conviction of sin and this understanding of God was something that he could not comprehend If the Spirit of God Himself was not already speaking in that person's life, God was speaking. God was working. God was putting pressure on that man. And I'll speak too. And I'll be faithful. God was working through what He said. And even if they seemed to be putting up a resistance, He knew. By the way, you don't know, you never know where a person is when you're engaging them in the gospel. You might meet a person and they just seem so willing, they're about ready to fall in your lap. It's just a passive resistance. They're not responding. They're resisting. Their heart is not turned. You find another person that's just resisting, giving you grief and is accusing you of things and libeling God, and you think, oh, this person is just lost, and yeah, they're lost, but they're coming. God is drawing them. You don't know. And So Paul is just faithful in pronouncing these truths knowing that God is speaking. Here's a third thing for us. You should be able to recognize the scrambling to get away from a convicting truth. You should be able to recognize it. Even if you've not faced it in a conversation with others that you're witnessing to. Even if you've not seen it in some conversation you've had with others, you'll see it there. You've heard this conversation in your own head as God has begun to convict you of your own sins. When God does, you know what we do? We usually come up with a generic idea. A generic argument well there's nothing really wrong with what i've done and if you really consider this in the light of where the world is going and what i was facing and you know we begin making these general excuses for ourselves and then the next thing we say is we get really hypothetical well what if someone does behave in that way is it really wrong and we come up with hypotheticals we cast it upon somebody else something that we are doing but somebody else might have been doing it. let's really consider this and then, and then finally we say well of course everybody does these things i mean like This is our unrighteousness, and that's our struggle, but we're only human. Let's not be too hard on ourselves. And then finally, when the conviction continues to come into us so that we know that it's our sin, what if I did lie? What if I did steal? What if I did abuse? What if I did cheat? What if I fill in the blank? Fill in the blank where God is convicting you. Can't God be glorified regardless? Must the world stop because of my sin? Move along nothing to see here I've seen it in conversations with people when I shared the gospel with them I've seen it more often the dialogue in my own head is the spirit of God is contending with me showing me my failure showing my sin and even though I'm a child of the gospel it's given to me through Jesus Christ alone there is in my flesh this default that runs away from the gospel to my own self-justification just like the lost man that God sent me to speak to. May God not let me ever off the hook. May he keep taught the lines of conviction in my life so that he might constantly move me into his gospel. There's no answer for myself in any point of conviction by minimizing it by laying it off on some theoretical idea, by laying it off on some hypothetical situation for somebody else, by laying it off in the mass and dilute it in the mass of everybody else is doing it, by laying it off by saying, well, yeah, I was wrong, but God worked good things out of it. God will get his glory in you. There's no benefit for me in any of those things. There's only gospel for me in the place in which I come to an end of my self-justifying rationalism's there's only a benefit for me when I come to the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for my sins and order to wash me and make me clean and so I must let the Spirit take me honestly before the face of God and there before His face see my sin, confess my need, fully, completely, and utterly surrender to Him. And that moment I embrace the cleansing that He's provided for me alone through Himself. In that moment, I realize the freedom and the life that comes to me through Jesus Christ and His gospel. And in that moment, I will want above everything else that others might know this freedom too. Which might mean that I have to face them when they offer the same resistance to the truth that I so often give myself before God. You need to be faithful in these things. You need to recognize these things and see these things. I see this passage as a passage that gives a tremendous point of wisdom for how we engage our children, how we engage our loved ones, how we engage our neighbor and our friend, the very points of pressure that we need to keep on in order to bring them to the gospel and wisdom in how we preach the gospel to ourselves and engage ourselves without excuse, keeping tight the line. Of God's conviction until we're completely reeled in to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where his blood washes us from every sin. Let's bow our heads. How rich is your word? How true and good. Lord, sometimes we feel as if we're fighting against an awful big fish, and he's putting up an awful fight, and our arms are tired. We want to leave, go, and let it loose. Oh, Spirit of God, grant us power. Cause us to subdue, bring to us power to subdue that which is in our flesh that flees from you. and Bring it into submission before your word and lay it out before the foot of the cross where your blood might wash and cleanse us and renew us where we might live in the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ that was won for us once for all in Christ's sacrifice. God, as we contend with those we love that are so resistant, help us to love them still, but never relinquish this line of truth that they may in one way or another see it from our lives and hear it from our lips. We would bring them before a God who loves them, but a God who will hold them to account whose love is proven in the cross of Jesus Christ, suffering and dying for their sins and providing a way that they have no way else but through him. Lord, we would be faithful to your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.